Before we get started, just a little tease. I saw the artwork for our science birthday card today. It looks great. I'm super excited to receive it in the mail. If you want one, and of course you want one, don't forget to sign up as one of our Patreons before May 15th. Details on scienceforthepeople.ca or on Patreon slash scienceforthepeople. Okay, let's get this episode started. The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. The internet is everywhere, quite literally, and that's great, but also sometimes terrible. It seems like barely a week goes by without some new major security breach or privacy screw-up hitting the news. Later on, Bethany will speak with computer scientist David Garcia about how expanding internet and social media platforms is increasingly taking control of our privacy out of our hands, in more ways than you might think. But first, I caught up with a cybersecurity expert I know to talk through how modern hacking differs from the hacks of old, and how an internet without national borders makes it tricky to police online crime across wildly different jurisdictions. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is James Line, head of R&D at the Sands Institute and director of Helical Levity, a security research firm. He comes from a technical background and has been working in the UK cybersecurity sphere for more than a decade, during which he has been routinely called upon to handle severe incidents. He's an instructor for Sands, can be seen speaking about cybersecurity on conference stages, on the evening news, and even on the TED stage. And just before we get started, I do want to disclose that I work at Helical Levity, which, as previously stated, James is the director of. He has kindly agreed to come on the show and chat with me about the things we never get to talk about at work. James, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So let's first start by talking about the different roles within the cybersecurity industry, because I think that there's a lot of people out there that, other than cybersecurity, don't really know what the industry contains. Right. There's there's that kind of stereotype image of the hooded hacker, the single role that everyone compresses the entire cybersecurity industry down to. But there's actually a huge number of different roles here. Just at a high level, we've got defenders, people that focus on stopping people breaking into systems. We've got forensics people that reconstruct digital crimes and go through trying to unpick what might have historically happened on a system or in a network. We've got penetration testers and offensive security experts. Those guys break into networks just like the bad guys to help people learn lessons and secure themselves proactively, kind of like breaking into a bank and showing them how you did it. Uh, that's the, the high level taxonomy of roles before we get into the myriad of people working on secure development and building better applications. There are hundreds and hundreds of different types of role within the security industry. Okay, so setting aside ethical hacking for the time being and speaking in the terms most people would when they talk about hacking, I mean, how has hacking changed over your lifetime in the industry? Well, there's been a, a huge transformation in the behaviors of attackers, their fundamental motives, let alone the, the tools that they use. I remember in the good old days, back in 2004, oh, we'd the actually, good old days. the good old days. Okay. By my perspective in my industry, that's a long time ago. I'm an old man. And I remember we'd see these huge global virus outbreaks just on, on massive, massive scale. And there was a real focus from cyber criminals in trying to attack on that large scale for notoriety. They weren't stealthy. They weren't subtle. They were loud and proud. Of the same measure, we also saw a lot of kind of 
academic malware. There used to be cases where people would design a really interesting virus with bizarre, interesting kind of parasitic traits, and they'd never actually release it to the outside world. They'd send it to us as a lab to kind of play with it academically and be impressed with their capabilities, which was really cool, frankly. But over the kind of past 13, 14 years, we've seen this transformation towards really making money, to being financially oriented. Uh, over the, in particular, the first eight years of that period, a pivot to stealing credit card information, malware and, and viruses becoming much more stealthy, trying to hide in the background and siphon off your data to, to profit from you as an individual or a business. And of course, in the last few years in particular, a focus on nation states and other actors using this for political leverage or for motives that extend well beyond financial gain. So broadly speaking, all of that turns into a hell of a lot more professionalism, a hell of a lot more design of these campaigns into really quite terrifying attack frameworks that ultimately can go as far as life and limb impact on us everyday users of technology. So one of the things I wanted to have you on the show to talk about in depth is some of the complicated legal boundaries, processes, and the real problems that cybercrime being international can cause. Um, but first, I think a good place to start is, is there an agreed upon definition of what is or is not a cybercrime? Well, yes and no, is always the uh, the answer with such a, a complicated question with, with international scale. There is, broadly speaking, alignment on the definition of, of cybercrime at a high level, particularly in the area of fraud where it's quite traditionally the case that computer-related crimes are pivoted across to be handled as matters of, of fraud. When you get into some of the details of who's the victim, the specific punishments, the investigative protocol, and even um, the, the process for people to share information to attempt to work through these crimes – things really start to get inconsistent because most of these laws are ostensibly national, which is, of course, a complete contradiction to the internet where we're all flat connected and there really aren't any borders whatsoever. So at a high level, yes, but in the practicalities of day-to-day, -day, really no. It's interesting because there seems in some cases such a fine line between the sort of just outright fraud and then cybersecurity or cyber fraud because the difference between getting someone to do something by picking up the phone and calling them, which ostensibly isn't a cybercrime, to getting them to do that via an email fish or a targeted uh, email attack or a targeted email message. I mean, where is the line that makes something a cybercrime there? Well, and, and this is where a lot of the complexity comes in. And it's, it's often in those small expert judgments that the difference between cybercrime and traditional crime comes out. Um, that can also lead to very interesting over prosecution in some cases. Um, two kind of worthwhile examples to explore to, to illustrate this, this very issue. Um, the first one uh, was a case in which an individual uh, found a flaw in a website and it was a flaw where poking and prodding the, just the address bar, the URL of the website manually, no hacking tools involved, managed to extract a very large amount of data. Uh, now, they immediately went down a path of disclosure to the impacted party, trying to do the right thing. 
And in this particular case, astonishingly, the regulations in the US were able to be used to prosecute that individual for computer fraud and abuse. When in reality, they, they'd not really had an intent to do harm. They really hadn't done any harm given their immediate disclosure. Um, but they were able to be prosecuted for something which, frankly, we should be thankful for them discovering uh, versus another party that could have used it for, for profit. And it came down to an expert judgment of whether or not that behavior was hacking. Was it purposeful intent to bypass a security system to do something bad? In another case, um, an early days of the internet case, um, this actually happened a lot. I'm thinking of one specific scenario. An individual was able to modify the prices of an early shopping cart system to buy a product for significantly less than it was advertised back in the good old days of web applications where trust was everywhere. And we just hoped that people were going to be honest. And there was a literal and price equals in the URL bar. So you could just modify it to whatever you wanted to pay. The argument that was applied here was, you know, if you walk into a car showroom, Someone says this car costs a thousand pounds and you decide to arbitrarily offer 200 and the store accepts it. Well, that's just negotiating a deal. So this person clearly subverted a pricing mechanism, an automated system, sold a product for a completely different price um, and got away with it completely free on account of the fact it mapped to the physical world as a bartering process. I'd argue that, that both of these are completely incorrect per the definition and intent of cybercrime. And the reality is, whilst we've had much more precedents develop over time, we still run into these scenarios today. Yes, we have high-level guidance on what cybercrime constitutes and how it translates from traditional crime, but it really comes down to the interpretation of experts to walk that line. I also think increasingly it's a healthy attitude to presume that all areas of law, all areas of crime may have a cyber element to them and may need to be prosecuted or dealt with within the confines of, of more general law than being cyber specific. It does seem to me like we're increasingly moving towards an age where we're we're going to have to stop always looking at is it a cybercrime or is it not a cybercrime? Because at some point that's going to become a very unhelpful definition. You're right. I mean, we just have more and more technology around us at every moment, both personally and professionally. We're constantly connecting little devices to control our heating. We've all got CCTV cameras, you know, sitting in strange parts of our house, baby monitors. Just at every moment, we're more subject to technology, which means from traffic incidents um, to burglaries to cases of professional misconduct, there's just more and more use of, of digital evidence and, and technology, either as a part of the crime or in support of, of it. Uh, that, that has to be analysed. So I think this is this is just going to be a default for society. The majority of crimes will have a a technical and cyber element to them. I'm assuming this is an issue that white hat hackers, penetration testers, ethical hackers have to kind of walk all the time because a lot of what they do other than motive, is really exactly the same kind of thing that the kind of nefarious, malicious hackers that we would want to be protected from. And so I guess really the only fundamental difference is one person has permission while the other person doesn't. I mean, that that really is the big the big difference. I mean, it's really important in, in this line of work to establish very clearly a scope a sort of working practices and to have explicit permission. You know, so, so when we'll go do this stuff, 
um, will put together a form that says, here are a set of laws that we are going to breach. And you agree that we are doing that with your permission, with intent to aid you in, uh, in your business in, in managing these, these risks. Um, with taking that out of the equation, we'd really behave exactly like a cyber criminal. I suppose there's that last mile. Um, which is why so many cyber cases end up being prosecuted as fraud. We have the Computer Misuse Act in the UK, which always makes me giggle slightly. And the Computer Misuse Act often is pivoted across to fraud because the prosecution there is stronger. There are, there are greater penalties and it depends on demonstration of intent to, to do harm. Well, if you break into a system, you steal large numbers of credit cards and you use them. It is very easy to show that intent. It's very easy, or at least in many cases, to demonstrate damage or harm that is done as a result of that and to quantify it on a financial basis. If you arbitrarily breach a system and you don't do anything with that data, that's a much tougher kind of line to walk of how much harm has been done and, and how you should be punished as a result. So that's, I think, why we see so much pivot from computer misuse. One of the most interesting parts of hacking as a crime uh, for me is that even more often than in many other forms of crime, it takes place across boundaries like state boundaries and national boundaries. So how do we figure out who has jurisdiction to investigate a particular cybercrime? Well, this is an area that has improved a great deal uh, over the last 13 or 14 years. It used to be really, really challenging. And cybercriminals would take advantage of that very situation and the time lag involved in information handoff. You know, you'd, you'd be working on something and, and have a set of IP addresses on the internet or a set of resources where you wanted to conduct a further investigation or even just issue a takedown. You knew this thing was explicitly bad. And you try to work with other countries, with other police forces um, to go through that process to investigate or take those things down. And it would take weeks. Some countries notoriously would pay lip service to it and then really never do anything. Well, of course, in, in the world of cybercrime and being on the internet for cybercriminals, shifting infrastructure and burning down their old assets and moving to new computers and devices can be done in the order of seconds and minutes, um, you know, hours in worst case scenario. So weeks gave them just huge pockets of time to hide within and dart around the internet, making tracking them down really difficult. That has improved a lot, not necessarily in black letter legal terms, but in the working partnerships between different countries in bilateral uh, agreements um, and working through organizations like Interpol, um, Europol, who've taken a much more active stance in kind of mediating these cross boundary cybersecurity cases. But cyber criminals have found new opportunities to exploit uh, the, the legal challenges between jurisdictions, um, where now it may not be so much a challenge of the time to share information across those borders. It may be certain geographies that are more tolerant of these behaviors or using victims as a way to slow the process down. And here's the canonical example. As a cyber criminal, I breach a legitimate small business. I hack into their website. And I inject some nasty code into this this business. Let's say they're a florist. Nothing against florists. It's just an example that I do rather distinctly remember. It's the day before Valentine's Day as well, which made it really painful. 
they inject this nasty code into this web page, and anyone who visits that page um, ends up getting compromised or attacked by their malicious wares. They then start distributing that website address to a, a huge number of people and basically using them as a pivot point on the internet to, to launch their attacks. Well, there's a, a really fantastic information asymmetry and legal asymmetry that, that occurs here for the attacker. If you're trying to go after a system that is explicitly bad, you can file a takedown request, you can work with the police and knock the thing offline. If they're a real business, you can't be quite so heavy-handed because then you are doing harm to a victim. You can't go take that thing straight down because you've got a florist there who's a day before their busiest day of the year. Again, I'm not generalizing that all florists have their busiest day of the, the year there, but it's certainly concerning for this one. I remember having a conversation with them. And it becomes really difficult to to actually uh, to clean that site up, to, to go through the process of advising that business on on how to, to recover. Even more so, if they do that across three or four businesses in a chain, they build a an anonymized set of targets on the internet, all of which are legitimate uh, victims jumping across different legal jurisdictions. They can make it extremely hard to track them down and make us have to jump through a lot of hoops to even get close uh, to figuring out what their real infrastructure is. Technology and questions around crime, around legal regulation, whether it's businesses or, or specifically around crime, it always seems to be one to like 10 steps behind where technology is and where it's headed. And it seems like just as we've tried to wrap our head around what happened last year. We're five years ahead already, and there's entirely new things that the legal frameworks haven't considered that there is no regulation for. We're really pushing boundaries faster, I feel sometimes, than we have any hope of catching up with. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, technology is just, it's so trite to say it, but it's just evolving at, at breakneck speed. And that is fantastic. I mean, some of the stuff that's being developed is amazing. You know, the fact you can just now go to an online web service and be like, yes, I would like to do some machine learning and here are my rules. And here is a massive data set that is exponentially larger than I possibly could have computed with hundreds of thousands of dollars 10 years ago. Oh, and I'm, oh, I'm done. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just remarkable. I think the, the real challenge here is to walk the line of the role of law as a framework and figure out where the specificity should come from. Back in 2004, um, the British government lost a couple of CDs of data records, uh, the Child Protection Register, which they sent via the post unencrypted. Because as part of their policy, sending things via Royal Mail was a secure transfer mechanism, which is as wonderfully laughable as you might think. And those CDs went missing. They never turned up, at least not to my knowledge. Um, and it sparked breakneck legal reform. I mean, just, just unbelievably fast reform that the formation of a commissioner, the information commissioner's office, um, taking from uh, a lot of the work that was being done over in California and the civil code, uh, to protect data, um, and just created this, this whole new focus on data protection that is ultimately driven up to a lot of the GDPR stuff that's happening now. And breakneck speed for lawyers there was a couple of years. It was really fast. Whereas, of course, we're sitting here going, okay, tomorrow I'm going to wake up and some new Internet of Things device may be being used by millions of people all around the world. Some new app 
uh, may be popular on hundreds of millions of, of devices and being used en masse with some horrifying technology flaw. So they're at such different ends of the spectrum. There is no way to make the law encompass up-to-date technical details for, for all that stuff day to day. What we've got to do is find a way to bring those two things closer together. And at the moment, expert witnesses, precedents through trials and cases is, is the glue. But I feel like we've got to get a bit further into using proper guidelines. And the Internet of Things is a wonderful example of this. There's an obligation, you know, a large number of obligations to provide consumers with devices, with products that are fit for purpose. If you buy a car and you drive it down the road and it has no brakes, there's quite a lot of law and precedents and guidelines to enable that situation to be recognized as bad and swiftly dealt with. If you buy a baby monitor and it decides to expose itself to the internet with default usernames and passwords so anyone can connect to it and listen to you in your home, record audio or speak to your child, well, you know, it's a black box device. You should probably throw it away and buy another one. We need to start developing more clear guidelines that we update regularly to support the law in recognition of what's an acceptable standard for technology. There's been some good progress in that, but we've got a lot of work to do. It seems like a lot of these reforms and changes are driven when something outrageous happens like Facebook and Cambridge Analytica that's now driven a ton of media coverage that just won't die. It's not just a passing piece of coverage that gets covered by next week's news. It has some staying power, it seems, and there seems to be some appetite, at least right now, to create some kind of reform or to at least try and change something. And it seems like a, a lot of this stuff is driven by outrage. And, and I wonder, because we're seeing more and more of this kind of coverage, is that outrage going to slip away as people just accept this as how the world is now? I, th I think some of the outrage um, on kind of classic data breaches has and is dying down, um, possibly to a, to a dangerous degree, actually, as I, I mentioned earlier. In terms of general shock and awe in technology, um, I think it's going the other way. Um, we are connecting more tech, sharing more data, depending on this stuff more, which means we're creating bigger and bigger opportunities to be surprised at how badly wrong it can go. And then when it goes wrong, being surprised and retrospectively trying to do things about it. I'm not convinced in any reasonable period of time that that model is, is realistically going to change. Um, and as a result of that, I think what is really important is that cybersecurity practitioners, that we as an industry work more closely with media to try and make that as positive as we can, to try and avoid misinformation, to try and avoid as much as possible hyperbole, you know, shock and awe terror, and to stick to the facts to enable consumers and others to make the right decisions to protect themselves and to, to guide uh, some of these retrospective fixes. I appreciate that that is ultimately on a, a grand and global scale, quite the pipe dream, uh, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. Uh, I think it's, it's a really important kind of vehicle to driving improvement. As you've identified, a lot of the bigger things that have happened, up to and including EU GDPR, a big regime focused on protecting data, were born from big breaches and the horror of consumers. I wonder too, we've, 
I think we often feel like we need some shock and awe in order to kind of scare people enough to take notice or make a change. But I don't know how much that works and whether or not it's better than just stating the facts and then making it kind of forgettable. It seems like there's no good way to present the information sometimes where, where people take more notice unless there's something like a big Facebook scandal or a big Cambridge Analytica size scandal. Yeah, I, 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 th- I think that's, that's true. There's a, there's a tough line to walk here between the two. You sometimes see coverage. We go, that is just irresponsible hyperbole. And on other occasions, you see things like, wow, you really underplayed how unbelievably dangerous that incident actually was. I think that's just something that we as an industry have to continue to work on, being more effective, better communicators of cybersecurity risk and the practices that that we all need to, to keep ourselves safe. It's definitely one of the things that I would lambast our industry. I'll put my hand up to it too over the past kind of 10 years. It's an area we could have done a lot better, where other industries have done better. Uh, And I think it's something we really have to focus on over the next few years as cybersecurity continues its trajectory to the core of pretty much every second of our everyday lives. That's quite the future. Uh, (laughs) I mean... Understanding that predicting the future is super hard. Talk to me about what you see as potential future areas of cybercrime, what they are, where you think some of that stuff is going. I mean, is there some idea of what's in the horizon there? Well, Skynet launches shortly, so Terminators, obviously. Um, <laughs> it, it is really difficult, but I, I think there are some some macro trends here that, that give us some indicators. Um, the first one for me is just the proliferation of the sheer number of different types of devices uh, and types of technology. We've had many years in cybersecurity worrying about, you know, Microsoft Windows computers, Macs, kind of Linux servers, a relatively small ecosystem of vendors and producers that cyber criminals would target, uh, within which, undeniably, Microsoft was their wondered love child. Now, we've got thousands and thousands of products available online. Uh, Wi-Fi connected hairbrush, because that's a good idea, apparently, um, or, or a toothbrush, um, you know, Bluetooth connected adult products, all kinds of bizarre things running different operating systems, different software stacks. All of these potentially have more diverse cybersecurity issues than the ecosystem we were used to. So I think, you know, challenge number one, we're going to see new types of attack that we have yet to identify, that we we have yet to see how cybercriminals will profit from or, or even uncover their motives in a whole set of devices where the vendors aren't used to worrying about security. And that's going to lead to some really painful response times. At the moment, if there's a horrifying cybersecurity incident, some nasty new exploit or flaw on one of those traditional vendors, they're frankly really, really good at fixing that flaw quickly and distributing it to hundreds of millions of people. Here we're going to have manufacturers that have no update ecosystem. They have no means of recourse to their consumers. We're going to have hundreds of thousands of people that will use the new thing. And the advice when it goes wrong will be unplug it and buy a new one. 
how do we even get that message out there? How do we tell these people? How do we make sure that device doesn't sit under someone's desk for 10 years providing some woeful exposure? So I think there's a lot of complexity in that ecosystem of, uh, of new vendors. Uh, the second one, um, I think more of the same. And I know that's a really boring prediction, but look at the last 12 to 18 months. There's been huge amounts of, of ransomware, malicious code that has figured out you value your data more than anything else. Its brilliance is it doesn't have to care about what your data is, just that you care about it. It's one of the most ubiquitous commercial models um, that the cyber criminals could possibly have picked. That's not going away. We see incremental improvements in their execution, both technically building better malicious code to attack people with better encryption, uh, but also in kind of payment and customer support models. Uh, I've found several ransomware authors of late to have excellent customer service in offering to assist in the decryption process. So that there's innovation in this, this business model that has been around for the past 12 to, to 18 months. Um, and I don't see any reason why it, it won't be here to stay on a more permanent basis. It's, it's an amazing way for, for cyber criminals to monetize. So just before we end, if you could find like a switch to flip that would make just the broader public or people in general kind of get one thing that they don't currently really get or a behavior that maybe you could get someone to dedicate 30 minutes to, if that's all you're going to get, what do you think would be the best way to spend that 30 minutes or the best thing for someone to kind of internalize? Well, I think, and I'm gonna I'm gonna hack the process slightly and give you two. I'm gonna give you one to experts and one to the layman. I'm I'm so sorry. Um, to the uh, to, to the average person, um, of which every one of us uh, has a responsibility to do this as part of being a, a good net citizen. Um, it's not big, it's not clever, but there's kind of ten basic cybersecurity practices. You can find them documented everywhere. Every security vendor, every IT company replays a lot of this stuff. There's 10 basic practices around good discipline on passwords, on updating your software, um, on thinking about when you plug in new random device X with Wi-Fi, like a toaster, that you change the username and password. Those basic practices, whilst they're not big or clever, are still the most common way that cyber criminals break into systems. People clicking on links they shouldn't is still one of the most common and effective techniques above and beyond the super uber exploit of nation states we discussed earlier on. So if we could get everyone to just take some time to look at those basic practices and implement to their best of their ability, it won't stop cybercrime, but it will make life significantly harder for cyber criminals in, in those areas. And my quick hack to the industry or to those of, of technical proclivity, we're developing a lot of new technology from smart cities to little devices we're plugging in all around us on new architectures, venturing completely new technology and business models. More and more of these are black box. They're built on complex stacks of technology. They're built on the shoulders of giants, years and years of layers of frameworks and libraries and hardware and amazing stuff that makes it impossible for the average person to ever dissect and understand. I mean, just look at a modern smartphone. Your chances as an average individual of picking that up and understanding the radio aspects of it alone, let alone the rest of it, are very slim. I think it's crucial we recognize that black box trend make sure we look at the skills of the next generation that we're bringing on and we start to build people with those capabilities so that when those black box devices start to go wrong, 
We have people that actually understand them. That would be it. James, thank you so much for your time today. Great, great talking with you about this stuff. Been a pleasure. If you want to learn more about James Line at the Sands Institute or any of uh, these cybersecurity topics, we have links to get you started, which, as always, you can find in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. We'll be back shortly with Bethany's interview with David Garcia. But first, we wanted to throw another podcast recommendation your way. If you like our show, you should seriously check out the People Behind the Science podcast. It's like our podcast, Next of Kin. Hosted by Dr. Marie McNeely, each episode welcomes on a working scientist to talk not just about their work, but also their journey into science, how they got started, when they got bitten by the science bug, their triumphs and great successes, those eureka moments you get as a scientist when, just for a minute, you're the only person in the entire world who has ever known a thing. I was just listening to the episode with Rodrigo Curran Caroga, and I'm always struck by how many great takeaways I get from listening to this show, even though I'm not a scientist myself. In this episode, hearing Dr. Caroga talk, I was reminded how important it is not just to search for answers, but to also make sure we're asking the right questions. You should definitely check out People Behind the Science. Find them on your podcast subscription service of choice or via their website at peoplebehindthescience.com. And now... Back over to Bethany and David Garcia. Welcome back. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science in the Public. Cambridge Analytica, Cambridge Analytica, Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica is like the Bloody Mary of the modern world. If you say that three times in front of your Facebook feed, Mark Zuckerberg comes out of it and your baby photos end up in the campaign offices of your least favorite candidate. There has been a lot of ink spilled on the issues of social media and privacy lately, usually connected with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. Maybe you watched Zuckerberg testify before the United States Congress and concluded that he either looked smug or a little like he was about to throw up. You and your friends on Facebook may have clicked on a link to see if you were one of the 87 million people who had their information shared. Maybe you're patting yourself on the back that it wasn't you and you don't share much of their on there anyway. Maybe you made sure your Facebook isn't hooked up to third-party apps, and you would never take that quiz to find out which Kardashian you have the most in common with. You have done everything you can to protect your privacy. But these days, all you can do probably isn't enough. Privacy is not a one-person operation anymore. And we've actually known about that since before 2018. Here to talk to us about social media and privacy issues is David Garcia, a computer scientist at the Medical University of Vienna and the Complexity Science Hub in Vienna, Austria. David, thank you so much for being here with us. Hi, thank you for for having me with you. I wanted to start with a little bit of background information about Facebook and the Cambridge Analytica issue for anyone who may have been living under a rock. Can you go over very briefly what we know so far? Um, yes, yes, sure. So um, Cambridge Analytica was working for various political campaigns, and including the 2016 US presidential campaign. And they were claiming that they could build psychometric profiles for large populations with big data. So they could just not get few panel uh, respondents, but like really large, large populations. And they worked with some researchers that developed an app that was called This Is Your Digital Life. And they paid a bit of money to about 270,000 people to, to answer some questions and to give access to a lot of their data on Facebook. 
And interestingly, this app was asking for some special permissions that are to see the informations, uh, the information of your friends or the friends of the users who installed the app. And this turned these 270,000 people in, in millions of people. Um, Cambridge Analytica, I think, said it was about 30 million, but then Facebook was worrying more about 87 million people. So through the friends of the people who had installed this app, they could really find information about many people. And well, this, this, uh, Cambridge Analytica was claiming that this data was uh, helpful to persuade voters and, and make them vote to one party or another or to go to vote or not. So the, the, the whole shock is uh, how is it possible that they could access so much data and to which end did they use it and if it was good or bad for democracy. Yeah, and to be clear, this is not a hack. This is not a data breach, right? It is is not a hack. So the way uh, Cambridge Analytica and, and, and their collaborators access this data was completely fine for all the regulations of Facebook, for all the agreements they have with developers. This is something that users gave access to, and you could give access to some information from your friends because they appear on your contact list and they appear basically on your Facebook feed. So then those those apps could, could access that data. It was uh, also not a breach, at least not uh, in the beginning. Uh, then Facebook asked uh, these developers to de de delete this information. And when they did not really delete it, then it became basically a leak of, of information after that point. But in the very beginning, it was not stolen. It was not hacked. It was meant to be retrieved. And one of the things that I think many people have found the most shocking about this Cambridge Analytica story is that it wasn't just data from the users, as you said, it was from their friends. Is this kind of data sharing where people are collecting data, not just about you, but about your friends, is that common on social media? I, I have to say it's really common and it was not a weird exception that this app was accessing that kind of data. Um, I remember that back then when they revoked this kind of access, there were about 13,000 applications that were affected. So there were many apps that will, were asking for exactly the same permissions. And then Zuckerberg mentioned uh, along the investigation that they were, they were investigating about 10,000 apps right now that could have access to that kind of data. So not, not only within Facebook, uh, also within other social networks, there are similar things. So when you're using applications on your mobile phone, sometimes you're giving access to your uh, contact lists on the phone and then the owners of the, of the app might be able to see also information about your friends. So it's not a problem only of Facebook. And we've got you here because you yourself have done some studies on social media and privacy. So far, you have not actually been able to study Facebook itself. Why is that? So I have not studied Facebook for this question. So there is uh, some interesting public data from Facebook, from the marketing API or from public pages where people discuss. And that's that's something I have studied, but not for questions about privacy. And the reason is, first of all, because the data is not really accessible for an external researcher like me. And what I could try is to go and, and talk to Facebook, to talk to some data scientists uh, at Facebook and ask if they want to collaborate on this or that question. But uh, of course, first of all, I don't believe they will agree on studying certain questions because they go against the, the business interests of, of their company. And second, I also think that we need to have some completely independent research to audit these things. So if I bring a collaborator who is paid by Facebook and who will have a clear conflict of interest with, with a certain and results, it will basically not serve the function that I wanted. So it was double. First of all, because I think it will not, they will not want to work with me on that issue. And second, because I think other people need to work on this issue. 
That's that's good. Um, but you did put out a really interesting paper in 2017 where you looked at social media profiles and you did this on Friendster. Now, can you talk a little bit about Friendster for the people who are too young to remember it, which may or may not be me? Sure. I, I, I even think I'm too young. I, I never, I never had a Friendster account also. <laughs> and so yeah, Friendster was, was launched back in 2002 and it got quite a lot of active users before Facebook or even before MySpace were really a thing. And in the US it faded out relatively quickly, but in many other countries people were starting to open accounts, especially in Southeast Asia. And at some point it reached about 80 million active accounts. So back then that was not little. It was, it was the first and the largest online social network of its kind. And then people started to leave for using MySpace and then for using Facebook. And then after many years later, it was shut down as a social networking site and they turned it into a gaming platform. And now it's not even uh, online anymore. So if you try to go to Friendster to see if uh, one of your friends had an account or something, you're not really going to find it. I mean, that's probably good. I can only imagine, you know, what kind of stuff was on there. <laughs> well, I can. Uh, the, the thing why we studied that network is because the Internet Archive uh, retrieved all the data that was publicly available there for historical reasons. And uh, basically, if you go through this uh, really hard to read uh, data set that is not for people to browse is on really large database. If you have an account, you might be able to find it. Oh, wow. But Friendster is is very dead. And in fact, it's it, so dead. There's an onion video about it that you got yes. your job title from. <laughs> Uh, yes, I mean, well, I, I, there's there's a very nice uh, sarcastic video from from the Onion in which an uh, internet archaeologist says that they discovered Friendster, and everybody had forgotten about it because it was some sort of disappear culture, and they they really show pictures of Friendster and of people doing things on Friendster as if it was an ancient uh, culture, and I got uh, I actually I got the idea uh, from it, and I had seen the the data set not long before I I heard about uh, this video and then I thought like oh wow that's that's not a crazy idea and uh, it's it's really cool how such a completely comedic video can motivate some research and I mean basically the, the idea of internet archaeology is not wrong is we can really study the non-written traces of people's activity in disappeared communities and try to understand why they disappeared so the very first research question I had for Friendster was to try to understand why it collapsed and why everybody left. But then later I found that the data was good enough to assess these uh, privacy questions. So then I used it further. So you were specifically interested in how someone's information can leak, not from themselves, not from what they share, but from someone else, someone they know. How could that happen? How could your information end up somewhere when you don't share it? So the the particular scenario that I was studying here was when people share their contact lists or their email lists with a platform or a social networking site. And maybe you have noticed that if you have an account on maybe Facebook or maybe Twitter, they ask you to share your lists to find your friends on the network, to find who is already there. And when you share this contact list, of course, you share contacts to people that are inside, but you also share contacts to people that are not inside the social network. You give the 
names and the addresses or even the the phone numbers of those people that never wanted to be in the social network. So now maybe some people don't really uh, notice this because they don't really ask for these importing contacts anymore because they don't need to. You already install a mobile phone application and you give permissions to access uh, your contact list and they can do it automatically without you having to click anything in particular. So it has become much easier and in fact it's much easier to get much more information or more leaking about people's friends and these applications can uh, find call information or even SMS content, content that you share with your friends. So think that whenever you're using a social network, you can also leak information about your friends who do not want to be there. And when you said it shares SMS content, you mean the content of your messages, like your text messages or your Facebook Messenger messages? Yep. Depending on the application, of course, yes. So you can read uh, your SMS uh, through through these uh, messenger applications, and then of course they need access to to this, and you give them permission to make a copy and a backup and so on. So now it's getting a bit better because you have more granular granular permissions, and you can really say I don't want to give permission to this or to that. But this is a really new thing, and up to now they have been harvesting all this data without much control. You have to say either I give everything or I give nothing to to use or not to use this. System. And one of the things you were interested in was kind of what you could conclude from people's data about their friends. And so you created a model using this publicly available Friendster data from <laughs> the internet uh, fossil record. Can you run through what you did, the model you created, and what you ended up finding? Uh, yes, so with with this Friendster dataset or this yeah this fossil or archive of Friendster, what we can see is how it evolved over time, and we can see when people were joining Friendster. So we were able to make like uh, go back in the past to some point in the past when Friendster was of certain size and some people were not in Friendster yet. So what we were doing is that we were evaluating what was the power that Friendster would have had if they wanted to make inferences on people that were not users yet. So it's like we were rolling back the timeline and we're going to that point, then making an estimate of some private information of people that were not users yet, and then evaluating it with future information just to see how powerful was the data inside. And we found that the information inside was informative of the marital status and sex sexual orientation of people who weren't users yet. And more strikingly, we even found that as the network grows and it gathers more data, these predictions become better and better. And that's what we call shadow profiles, that they can make a file with information on a person that does not have an account by using information of people who do have an account and share these contact lists about their friends that are outside. So I think it's it's very important to emphasize here when you talk about shadow profiles, many people might say, oh, my friends are giving information that are creating shadow profiles on me about my Facebook account or Friendster account. That's not true. These are people who were never, ever on the service. Yes, the, the, your friends uh, can't help basically giving this information. So if they want to use the, the, the system or if they have given some information before, that information is already there and we can't help sharing data or sharing some of our private properties with our friends. So let's say if you are like certain uh, team, then it's very likely that your friends like the same sports team. So that's not very private. It's all right. But there are more private things like uh, political orientation or religion that you 
also share with your friends and once is something known about the person and who are their friends it's possible to predict that so i would not blame our friends i will blame friendship as a concept and if we think that people should still have friends it's just going to happen that you are we're going to be able to predict this information from from non-users and what could a company do with this information? So that's a very good question. So we think that this information can, of course, be sold to third parties. And in particular, if it's not regulated, since these people have not agreed to any particular terms on how that information can be used or not, uh, there could be a wild card or there's really not a grace area in which as long as they don't really say certain things, they are able to share this information as much as they want. Uh, we we also think that is pretty dangerous uh, for the case of sexual orientation in particular because uh, we know that in certain countries and in certain situations it can be used to discriminate against people. So if you have not given any information about this but this can be inferred from your friends it could be uh, quite an open door for abuse. And there are other things like substance abuse that also could be appearing there or other things like yeah, again like political orientation or religion. So it could go uh, pretty far in, in not be very innocuous at all. And you mentioned this is just, this happens. People want to join the service. They import their contacts. And you said you don't, you don't really blame your friends. I mean, I think a lot of people, I've actually spoken to people who, um, you know, found in their Facebook feed that their information had been shared. And their first response was, Oh, well, some of my friends are just stupid. And, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but you don't, you don't blame, you don't blame friends. Well, so they think my friends are stupid, but they are also sharing information. And they're also telling something about their friends as long as they're inside. So I don't think in a particular individual is to blame. And that's, that's precisely my whole point that this is not just an individual contract between a user and a platform or a company. This contract or this deal that you're making is affecting and the, the, the power or the decision of other people to make the deal contract. That's the same, the same deal. So there is a network effect or what we call a collective aspect that makes this not an individual decision and you cannot blame one person or one of your friends. This is something we all have to decide and regulate as a community or as a society and not to think about individuals, what they did or what they didn't. And this concept of people not necessarily having control over their own private information has actually come to the public eye before. There was a Facebook bug in 2013 um, that kind of brought this out, though it was not a shadow profile the way you studied it. It was kind of friend sharing. Can you talk a little bit about that Facebook issue in 2013? Uh, yes. So there was a bug that made some private information from some of the users to be leaked. So that was really a, a problem. It was basically a, a, a mistake from Facebook and they acknowledged it and they said, okay, we fixed it, we apologize and so on. And what happened is that some of the people that were affected by that leak uh, saw the information of them that was leaked. And they noticed that their mobile phone was on this uh, leak, even though they had not shared it with Facebook. And they started to worry, how is it possible that my mobile phone is there? Uh, and then they figure out that uh, they could find the mobile phone through the friends of this person because they share their contact lists and they find the name of this person in their mobile phone contact list, for example, and they see the real number. So they feel this kind of partial shadow profile. So uh, that they, it, was, it was clear that they were crossing data between users and they were filling up the gaps with information from your friends. So the whole topic of shadow profiles and what could be done beyond and going to non-users uh, came to light that day. And nobody really 
did anything about it. So, well, there's a whole uh, movement or an initiative of Europe versus Facebook, which is uh, led by Max Rems here in Austria. And, and they, they are trying to fight this and they have some lawsuits and some trials coming up. So some people are trying to do so. But what I would say is that it's definitely not enough. So in five years that, that we are down the road, we are seeing the bigger problem now and people are starting to worry now. But some people have been worrying since a while ago. And your original study on this looked at Friendster, which is old and dead. But your recent study, you actually tested your shadow profile hypothesis, whether um, you could collect data from non-users with real people on Twitter, where information is public. How did you do that? How did you find out if someone had had a shadow profile made of them? So, first of all, we don't really find if the shadow profile exists. We only evaluate if it's possible to do it and if the information is is enough to try to make a prediction. But we do it from outside with much, much worse data than what Twitter or what Facebook could do. And what we did there is that we uh, created a random sample of Twitter users and we saw who they talked to on Twitter. And we look at those people that had joined Twitter before them. And then we use the information only from those people who had joined before to try to make predictions on on these individuals. So we saw how much information Twitter could have inf- uh, predict from, from these people from before. And very interestingly for Twitter, we have a lot of metadata on the tweets and we can see if the tweet was created from a mobile phone application. So this gives us a pretty good uh, signal of people who might have shared their contact lists with Twitter because they, up to recently, you had to share your contact list with the, the app on, on Twitter. So we have a very, very uh, naturalistic scenario to try to make these inferences. And we only tried with location in that case to try to predict where a city or where the state of a person is. And we found that by using only this very poor information of friends who joined Twitter before you and who used the mobile phone to share this contact list, you could make a prediction of about 70 kilometers error for a person who was not a user of Twitter yet. So imagine if you have all the data that Twitter has or all the data that Facebook or any other company, I mean, this is not an accusation to any particular company. This is a way larger problem. Uh, then you can predict where, where people live. Uh, you can predict many other things and, and this could be a major issue. And so... That means that Twitter could know where you live. Basically, yes. Uh, we think <laughs> that they could know uh, uh, which city you live in, uh, basically. And they could, yeah, you don't have a Twitter account, but that doesn't matter. You have enough friends inside Twitter who live around you. And if they share their contact lists, Twitter can see these contacts to you and they see the tweets and the information that is generated around you. So why not to infer where you live? And that's just one part of the, of the piece. Of course, then what you want is other information to know where people live and who they are, what they like and whatnot. And then is when you can do all these psychometric profiles for uh, political campaigns and so on. So, uh, yeah, it's just a step that we evaluated and it all points in the same worrying direction. And you never created these shadow profiles yourself. You were very careful to be like, no, we would never do that. We just, we just want to know if you could. 
Yes, exactly. So uh, we only used uh, information that was already public to us uh, at some point, and we did this kind of historical evaluations, like when you are evaluating if a trading platform will make money, you cannot really predict the future, but you can see how it will have performed in the past. So we're kind of doing the same. We already know the future now, but we see if in the past they will have predicted something that was not public at that point. Um, and so we don't have to build a shadow profiles for that. We just need to evaluate if some prediction technique is good enough to give some information about something. And so precisely, we always try not to have advanced uh, techniques and not to try anything very advanced. We always use what we call unsupervised classifiers that they don't really need to learn a lot from the data. And this just gives us a low, lower bound on the predictability that we can get. And we do this on purpose because we don't want to develop advanced techniques to break the privacy of people. We just want to have a theoretical lower bound estimate on what can be predicted. And that lower bound is already high enough for us to see that it's worrisome and that, that something can be predicted even with the dumbest tools that we use. So we have not really advanced the technologies to do that. And anybody can do what we have done. You don't need any kind of deep learning or any advanced technologies. And if you start using those techniques, we think it can get much better and it can become basically much worse. And when you wrote these papers, you noted that you did not know and you did not necessarily think that social media apps were necessarily constructing these shadow profiles. But when Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, testified before Congress, he made some comments that kind of made you perk up your ears. What did he say? So it's true that we didn't have evidence, but uh, the topic was out there. And there was this congressman, Ben Lujan, who asked Zuckerberg if they collect data on non-users. And Zuckerberg replied that this, in general, we collect data on people who are not signed up, but we do it for security purposes. So he acknowledged that they do collect data on non-users and he uses an excuse the security security reasons and it was very interesting because then the, the congressman uh, went deeper and he really asked directly about shadow profiles so something like do you know if you are building shadow profiles that this is an issue and so on and then uh, Zuckerberg said that he had no idea what he was talking about like basically that he didn't know what the shadow profile is and basically there I, I, I noticed that uh, yeah, Zuckerberg had acknowledged that he do collect data about non-users and he basically failed to respond about this question on shadow profiles. So if he cannot really say, no, we don't do this, and he gives signs that they are doing it to some extent, or at least with excuse of, of uh, security, um, given that our results show that it's technically possible, now we need a guarantee that they are not doing it and not these very worrying signals that we got so far. So it sounds like they they are collecting shadow profiles, even if only for security purposes note my air quotes <laughs> so with the with the excuse of security people have done horrible stuff in the past and at least in europe we have quite a memory of that so uh, what we need is guarantees and we need uh, guarantees that require also some uh, independent audits and so on so uh, yeah i will not take their word because uh, they're basically uh, interested agents in this whole system but when they are put to testify in front of the congress they already gave us some warning signals so I think this warrants uh, more investigation into whether they are actually doing it or not and checking it now really physically there if they have any kind of information like this. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on the show and creeping us out. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I'm sorry for that, uh, <laughs> that I creep you out. But uh, yeah, I think we need more awareness on this topic. And, and yeah, this case uh, of, of the congressman asking uh, Zuckerberg precisely about this turn shadow profiles means that there is more awareness uh, growing up.
And I think there will be changes in the future. Of course, I hope so. But it's never, never about to talk about what are other consequences or yeah, other companies that could be doing the same. We've linked to more information about David Garcia's work and the ongoing Facebook drama at scienceforthepeople.ca. There you'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to our show, or leave us a friendly review. We will not be selling your data, honest. We also got a Patreon page, and make sure to check out the awesome new project we've got going there. Support us, and we'll send you something neat. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 